and going live now. We're live. Alrighty, so uh, welcome everybody to another episode of the Headphone Show, and this time we have, of course, uh, Tyler and myself, but then we also have uh, special guests, Critical and Tom from Dunu. Uh, so big thanks to you guys for uh, yeah, joining us on this, uh, I guess it's Saturday morning for us, and very late at night for you guys. <laughs> um, but uh, this is going to be a bit more of a IM-focused discussion, even though we'll probably get into some of the over-ear stuff, because Crin's now gone into that as well. Um, but if you guys are watching this in the future, uh, I will have a podcast version of this as well linked in the description. And then uh, just for anybody who's unaware, Crin runs the uh, the website In Ear Fidelity. So I'll leave a link to that as well in the description for this if you guys want to check that stuff out. Uh, but uh, we might as well get going here. Uh, I have a number of questions, a number of topics that I'd love to uh, ask you guys. Uh, and I want to start with um, asking a number of questions of Tom. Um, I actually recently did the, uh, Tom knows this, but um, I've recently gone over a number of uh, Dunu IEMs, including the Luna and the uh, DK3001 uh, hybrid, uh, and the other uh, hybrids as well. There's the DK2000 and one as well. Um, and I wanted to get uh, Tom's take on a number of uh, just sort of product development questions. So I figured I'd, I might as well start us off there. Um, first, um, when it came to the Dunu Luna, I mean, actually, um, I tried it, the first time I tried that was actually at CanGem. Um, and you, I, I think it was either you or somebody there was telling me that it took a long time for you guys to develop this. And I was wondering, like, what were sort of the design goals with the Luna? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I think, I think, yeah, it was me uh, who was there, um, yeah. and that was actually my first Can Jam, actually, um, in in North America, at least, because I've been basically living in Asia for the last ten or so odd years. Um, so that that was actually my first time actually doing a can jam um, in the US. Um, so that was fun. Um, and so, but going back to your question, uh, yeah, it took us actually, I think about three, I want to say three or three and a half years, basically from planning to basically signing all of the contracts, getting the production up and running, going through prototypes, um, I think it was 2017 when uh, we first started talking to the beryllium suppliers. And then um, I want to say 2018, um, first half of 2018, when we first got the first shipment of beryllium foil and we start started playing with it. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was definitely over two and a half years. Mm -hmm. um basically the first maybe like six months um before that was spent on just thinking about what we wanted to do with this type of material um and it really stemmed from i think a a, a core design goal um and it started off with i think what we had before we we started off with a product i think um in 2016 uh, that was the DK, the the original DK three thousand one. Not the pro. And yeah, not the pro. Gotcha. Um, and at that time, we actually had in development the uh, the DK four thousand one as well, mm -hmm. um, as well as a number of other products. Um, and the 
core idea was that we wanted to use a larger diameter uh, dynamic driver for the low end. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered was that in order to get the kind of dynamic range reproduction that we needed out of a large driver, we needed to make a pretty large skirt or surround. And so we thought, you know, why don't we try and build on that idea, try to try, um, try to go for new ways to try and optimize dynamic range re reproduction. And so I think it was at that time where um, we found out that uh, Materion was actually looking for uh, companies to try and develop a beryllium driver earphone um, mm -hmm. using their material. And so I think they just started from there. The when it comes to using Brilliant, I mean, there's uh, there's now a few of them out there. I'm aware of actually three Brilliant driver IMs, and maybe there's more of this. But um, what I'm wondering is, you know, the uh, let's say ad adventures into Brilliant uh, for dynamic or for you know dynamic driver IEM uh, development. Um, do you see this as kind of like a way forward to? Um, as opposed to the sort of hybrid styles that you find with, you know, many other IEMs like the DK3001 Pro as well. Um, you know, it seems like there's two different ways of, of achieving, you know, good technicalities across the board and then this really nice dynamic driver in the base. Um, do you guys, yeah, do you see like Beryllium as like a, a way forward for this as an alternative to, you know, the hybrid designs or is this something that can go in conjunction with them? Is one better than the other? What's sort of your, your take on that? Okay. So I, I, I think there are two different ideas at play mm -hmm. um, that I think you're referring to. The first being that hybrid drivers are a way of getting a lot of detail out of the mids and highs while sort of preserving that nice and thumpy low end. Mm -hmm. um, and the other idea is... Uh, what if we just use a traditional dynamic driver to reproduce everything, right? I, I, I'm assuming that's what you're trying to get at here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there, um, at, let me just start off by saying very simply that uh, we will be continuing hybrid design development, um, except also with sort of the lessons that we've learned from the development of the Luna. Um, so we definitely don't see it as too, you know, like competing. Basically, oh, this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not, yeah, they're not. Basically, a dynamic driver is a dynamic driver. We can try to make it do uh, whatever it is that, that we'd like it to do, right? So if we want it to just be a woofer, then we could try to do it that way, right? Right. Um, and and so basically we we see a dynamic driver or a balanced armature driver any type of driver right planar um electric what have you any of these drivers are just tools and and whatever it is that we're using we'd like for it to sort of have its own character and and have it be brought out as much as possible right so the reason why we chose beryllium, right, was because of all the properties that that I think 
a lot of people have maybe looked into, right? Beryllium has very a very high stiffness to weight ratio. Um, it also doesn't ring very much. So it's really an ideal driver for, for sonic applications, right? Uh, but it doesn't really mean that, that it's the end-all, be-all, right? Mm -hmm. um, I know there are a lot of people who, who sort of dream about having a, di uh, a diamond driver. And, and that's why um, I think something like diamond-like carbon has been right. thrown around. Uh, but all of these things are really only just variations. There's, there's substrates for what we want to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, we want a, a driver that is very stiff and a surround that is very compliant, and we want it to distort as little as possible. And the rest is about how we play around with the vibrational modes of the driver to get that response that we want. Right. Yeah. So, so for us, it's not necessarily about, oh, absolutely, oh, beryllium is the only way to go. Um, but, but it's really just, just one of many things that we use. Right. Um, when you did start this project with the Luna, did you find, I mean, just working with beryllium and these materials, did you find any, you know, unique challenges that you weren't expecting <laughs> kind of going into it? Whether for uh, tuning or anything else. Uh-huh. So, so let me preface by saying that, you know, obviously I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the acoustic engineer who designed everything. So I, I'm not actually familiar with every single challenge that went on. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, for us, I think something that is overlooked, um, we, we spent a lot of time just now um, talking about beryllium, right? But... I think what we spent more time on was figuring out how to design the actual driver to make, you know, to, to, to actually make beryllium work. Right. So the important thing that I think, uh, you know, we should, that I should probably explain is that in order to get a, a true beryllium foil driver to be mounted into a dynamic driver, we have to sort of glue the foil itself edge to edge to its surround. And that is a design that is uh, what uh, is, is termed a composite driver. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, it's a very similar type of design to what Focal has done um, right. with their Utopian Stelia and, and I think ZMS but are like that the, as well. I'm not familiar with how those drivers are mm -hmm. made, but um, I do know for sure that the entire sort of Focal line, right. including the Clear and, and the LER, um, they are designed in this c composite fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we've done is take that sort of composite driver design, which has been done in the past, um, but what we've done is try to you know, use two different materials of very sort of different compliances and and put them together and mm -hmm. actually put them into a really small in-ear product and and so that was the big challenge um rather than right the beryllium foil itself right that thing um it, it's that is actually materion doing that stuff for us right, right. i got you we yeah. yeah so we send them a a mold design right 
they actually make the mold for us, they stamp out all of the beryllium for us, and then they send it to us preformed. So we don't really have to worry about all the safety issues surrounding beryllium. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so all of that stuff is their side um, of development, while our side really has to do with how do we get that beryllium and how do we glue it you know, into the surround? And, right. and in fact, how do we choose the material for the surround? Um, so I, I, usually I don't like commenting on, on other companies' products, but um, I, be, I think because of, of this type of driver, um, a lot of people have been asking. There are pretty much right now only two beryllium foil dr driver IMs talked about right now right so yeah. i think you've re you've reviewed both of them so it'd be uh the luna and also the a8000 by final audio right mm -hmm. so they use a different material surround than than we do oh interesting right yeah and and so they use um i'm i i don't remember exactly i'm not sure um but they use a different material surround right so they have a different design goal than we do and so Choosing this material for the surround is, and also choosing and and sort of developing formulations for the adhesive that that needs to go between the surround and the diaphragm itself is actually even more important than the fact that the Luna is a beryllium foil driver. I am. This sounds like something that uh, Android would know about. He's the, uh, I think he's an adhesives <laughs> materials engineer. <Yeah. laughs> Um, but that's that's interesting to, to to hear about you know the the differences in uh, implementation. But I mean, what you're saying essentially then is that you know what you guys are focused on is the implementation of this material, not as much the material itself. Yeah, I mean, and, we 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 trust in the fact that that you know whatever material it gives us is mm -hmm. the kind of material that that really does work for acoustics, right? So um, I think the thing that we must remember is that Materion as a company has actually sort of been in the audio game for a while. Mm -hmm. They've been supplying speaker diaphragms to a lot of high-end speaker companies for a very long time. And in fact, um, I would say that even Focal gets the raw material from Materion themselves mm -hmm. uh, because Materion basically owns 90% of the entire beryllium market. And there are many reasons for that. So the, the main reason is that they're, they're a highly vertically integrated company. And so they own their own beryllium mine in Utah. And they process all of that beryllium ore and then send it to various different facilities in the U.S. And they actually have a very large reserve of beryllium right there in Utah. The mm. other sort of sources of beryllium around the world are basically in places that are a little questionable politically. And so so basically, if you're buying from those sources, um, maybe you might not know the next price of of your shipment of beryllium and and you might and one day that mine might dry up. So I think most people tend to buy from uh, Materion um, as a result. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, that's fascinating. I, I didn't know that about um, that they were actually mined in the U.S. and some for some of them. That's it's uh, mm -hmm. interesting to know. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier about the you know the the implementation and the shell design and the housing and all that stuff. Um, I, I wanted to ask about the the fit because something like a theme that I've noticed with a lot of Dune IEMs, well, at least the, the recent ones that I've been sort of evaluating, uh, is that they're the fit is very very comfortable. Like they're very uh, on the Luna specifically, it's more of like a shallow fit that. I often, you know, even when I talk to people about IEMs, they go, I don't like, you know, putting stuff into my ears. <laughs> Whereas with the Luna, it's more of like, a, yeah, it doesn't really feel quite like a, you know, typical IEM, you know, where you're inserting it into your ear canal. Um, when you're developing something like the Luna, um, how, how much are you guys thinking about fit versus optimal sonic performance given, you know, ear uh, or the insertion depth and stuff like that? I think, I think our concern with fit started from our older products. So, mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff has sort of predates me because I I, I really only joined the company uh, late last year, just okay. as the Luna was about to announce. So, but uh, essentially, I think a lot of people had uh, comfort issues with. Dunu's previous products, so basically the previous like uh, DN two thousand. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, two thousand. Yeah, the DN two thousand hybrid line, as well as the DK three thousand one, the original. Right. Um. And so while the DK three thousand one, the original, was very small in size, it had you know a, a bunch of oddly placed corners and 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 the insertion angle for the stem was kind of you know, it, it was a little steep. So there were quite a number of people who had fit issues. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, like I didn't have fit issues, but a ton of other people uh, had a ton of issues with it. And so, so I think from there, the company recognized that there was a lot of room for improvement. And so we went back to the drawing board, looked at, you know, all the different things that, that we could try to do to, to try and improve comfort. Um, with respect to sort of packaging and size, um, I, I don't think it has been an issue because uh, we, we've sort of been able to optimize uh, you know, what we do in, in terms of CNC uh, uh, programming and uh, things like that to be able to fit whatever size driver that, that we need um, into that small of a package. Right. Um, I think what we, where we do run into the limitations is in the sort of hybrid packaging. In order to fit all of those drivers into such a small size, um, so right now the highest sort of driver count that we can do is is four balance armatures and a dynamic driver down low, mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty much packing everything in. Um, and and while we could probably put in one more or even two more, um, I think we have to consider whether you know we really need to do that, and and whether um, the sort of the the path lengths for for sound reproduction are actually optimized in that case. Right. Right. Yeah. So so I think that's where we run into a technical issue. Like if we stick in more drivers, uh, 
will it actually enhance sound hmm. or is it just sticking in more drivers for the sake of doing so right it, it's interesting because um so so Crin and I really like the uh, the Moondrop Blessing too, but there's a lot of people, you know, where if for, for that IEM, um, the it's just very large, like the nozzle size and like the whole IEM is just a little bit large. Um, and, you know, I don't know if Crin's been doing this, but I've certainly been recommending, uh, you know, to a lot of people, you know, if they if they want to get a good, you know, very agreeable tuning and they like the idea of something like that, um, with you know sort of a hybrid driver IEM, if the fit on the B- blessing two is a challenge, <laughs> uh, the you know the the, the uh, DK three thousand and one Pro is sort of the it's, it's like near the top now in my recommendation, and and like it's funny because it kind of it surprised me how much I value that because I don't think normally about that kind of stuff when I'm evaluating and reviewing IEMs because I'm, I'm not using them as as you know just regular devices I'm, I'm more approaching it from like an analytic and you know critical evaluation standpoint but when it comes to actually using the IEM for longer periods of time I it's amazing how much of a difference that makes uh, I find at least um I, I I don't know that was just something that I, I was thinking about um and so both what you're saying is that if you had if you had a larger size to work with, you'd be able to put more drivers in. But in theory, there's a sort of a question mark there still for, you know, what the benefit of doing that would be. And so um, as it stands right now, you're you're kind of uh, optimizing what you can do and, you know, finding the best sort of cadence for comfort to performance. Is that is that somewhat accurate? Uh, yeah, sure. Um I think what I can add to that statement would be that uh, we always try to design to have our housings to be as small as possible so that we can fit the largest number of years, Mm. right? Um, We have sort of run into an issue with, especially with the Luna, that the housings are almost too small and (laughs) that a lot of people have started telling us that it doesn't feel secure enough in the ears Mm -hmm. and part of that issue might be because uh the stems on the luna are a little shorter than normal um but but if you look at the stems on the luna compared to you know a bunch of other in-ears right they're they're actually you know kind of average size and length um so so i think it's the fact that it is so small that 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 people are saying that that it's just not secure enough. Mm-hmm. I remember using um, this is way back in the then day. Um, uh, if you guys know the the QJs from Jays, like a Swedish brand, mm-hmm. yeah, they were tiny tiny earphones. And I remember when I was really you know back in the day when I was young and in this hobby, I, I really liked the way they they were so small. But then at the same time, they they were kind of just floaty and mm-hmm. and didn't feel very substantial in my ears. And so I think that type of feeling, while it's very, you know, it's almost weightless, um, it doesn't have a sense of security. Right. So I think there are positives and negatives to having small, comfortable shells. Um, and at the same time, what we're working on right now, we actually just launched a, 
a, a product line um, that that is based around the, the sort of same acrylic shell design as the blessing too okay um and and so what we're trying to do now is to try to find you know a shell sort of design that is that is a good happy medium you know having that kind of security inside your ear um, but also still fitting a lot of different ear shapes um, but I think it's going to be an ongoing challenge for not just us but just pretty much any company that makes in ears mm -hmm. uh, we like everyone needs to try to slowly adjust the shape of their 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 earphones to try and fit um, at least what their target demographic is right. um, and eventually I think what we'll see is that there will be different shaped shells for you know s different types of populations um, and actually a company has actually done that um, uh, in your monitoring a, a, a German sort of pro audio company um, actually did that um, I think with their uh, SD line of, of, of earphones so so this is something that that I think um, companies will eventually start doing more more commonly mm. and, and I especially for the uh, very mainstream companies out there so rather than developing you know one design uh, for the shell and everything it's development for a number of different types of fit something like that yeah or or at least that you know something will they'll they'll design something modular enough to, mm. to be able to fit different size um, shells or fins or other sort of app um, attachments onto their earphones um, right but I think it's definitely a challenge for for every single company out there mm -hmm. um, for uh, the hybrids um, so, so something like the DK 3001 Pro um, what are the balanced armature drivers that are in there uh, right now and if you had a different shell design would that expand the capabilities of the type of balanced armature drivers that you'd be able to put in them uh well i well so basically we have classically only used balanced armature drivers from uh Knowles mm -hmm. acoustics right um and that and the main reason for that is that uh Knowles is the one of the oldest producers of balanced armature drivers and and they are known for their great quality control. And mm. so we, um, usually what happens is that, you know, everyone, when they order balanced armature drivers, they get it in trays, um, bunch of little um, trays of filled with little tiny little BA yeah. drivers. <laughs> and, and what happens is that other companies that do build balanced armature drivers, their, their defect rate is higher than than mm. basically than than Knowles. and and so we mainly use have have in the past used Knowles balanced armature drivers because of their great quality control and it is not to say that um ba drivers from other companies are not good um because there are um there are ba drivers from other companies that are definitely you know pretty pretty darn good um and and in fact uh sony makes their own ba drivers um, and there are a bunch of companies now in China that make balanced armature drivers and, and for a much lower cost and Knowles makes them. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so it, 
it's really not about you know what type of driver um, or or what com like what company they're from, but really more about how how these drivers are selected. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to basically any uh, custom in ear company's uh, chief acoustic designer, they will often talk about sort of the core sound that a type of balanced armature driver, driver will make. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, um, the very famous uh, Knowles TW, TWFK, right? That they, a lot of people tend to say that it has a type of sound or the, the ED driver, which has been used in, you know, for decades in the, the Edemotic ER4. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, a lot of designers will say that has a type of sound. And some people will say, like, a competing company, um, uh, like, for example, the, the Sony on 2300 series, they have a slightly different type of sound than the <laughs> Knowles ED driver. Kren loves right? those. Um, <laughs> so so uh, what I think what, these, uh, what designers mean in terms of the type of sound is... is um, I think a, a, a product of a lot of different things, right? First, there's frequency response, there's distortion profile, um, but but also how they react, um, and, and you know, electrically, um, mm -hmm. because you know, different companies make different types of uh, like make, make their BA drivers from slightly different materials, um, and and that might just end up uh, allowing their drivers to react very slightly differently um, under different sort of voltage loads. Um, and, and so uh, I don't know exactly what, it, what the differences are because I don't think any designer really knows. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's kind of the, half the fun of it. Um, I think a lot of these designers just like to pick and choose between different drivers and see, okay, the, the, do I like the sound and and do I want to use it in um, in my design? Um, and actually, like um, so, uh, I wanna I wanna talk about um, Andy Zhao, who is our acoustic designer, and and he's actually responsible for voicing um, all of our products, and he actually does this with dynamic drivers as well. So. Uh, right now, he's designing a, a earphone that, that we're calling Zen. Um, and, and he's actually choosing from slightly different um, driver diaphragm materials. And, he's, and, and I asked him a few weeks ago, like, okay, so, so how do you want to tune this earphone? Like, what kinds of, type of sound signature would you like? And he said, I don't know. Um, and the reason why he says, I don't know, is that he says he needs to hear the, the particular characteristics of that driver first mm, um, interesting. in order to decide what, how exactly he wants to optimize for that driver. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, what we can do is that we can sort of shoehorn any driver into to having the frequency response that we want, but would that necessarily mean that, that it's the sort of, uh, so to speak, best version of itself? Right. That, I think, is a big question mark. Interesting. So a lot of you know, the way that IEMs are tuned um, is, is based on um, 
not necessarily on whether or not something hits a target curve, but but more so the driver itself and what you know what's best for the driver. Uh, that's interesting to hear that it kind of works like the relationship works kind of the other way. <laughs> so so I think this is at least a way that Andy likes to work, mm-hmm. and 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 I think if we look at the way um, he targets and and the way he voices. Um, our products is that I think he has a different direction that he wants to go in with each earphone and and partially it is informed by the sort of chief characteristics of that driver or or at least how the drivers interact with each other um, right so so if he chooses a certain type of driver material he might want to sort of accentuate certain aspects of that driver that that he thinks is good right so so i think i think they're um for a lot of people um they think ringing is bad right in general i think Mm -hmm. the idea is that ringing in driver is bad um but maybe that ringing sounds particularly euphonic in a certain way um i think andy might try to find a certain signature that would sort of fit under that mode if it has those characteristics yeah if it has that Mm -hmm. those characteristics yeah um so so while i think while i think a a target curve is a nice idea to have um it's not necessarily the way you know at least um we design And, and and we don't always you know go for that like we we don't tend to stray too far from 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 you know what is generally accepted as 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 a decent target curve but we also try to sort of bring out what we think are our nice properties of different drivers i think um actually the other day um i think you were interviewing uh zmf yeah and and i think he was talking about some you know something similar um that mm. that you know there are certain things that he likes about certain types of drivers and 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 he doesn't want to get rid of certain properties yeah um Um, yeah and he was talking about how like one of the reasons why he uses you know the different uh one of the reasons for the lineup that he has is because they're sort of like you know what can i what can i get out of this driver i want something that has these characteristics from this driver um so it's interesting to hear there's kind of like a a similarity there um just Mm -hmm. just so everybody knows uh, Crin's having trouble with his mic so he's going to try and fix that and troubleshoot it and uh and come back on in a second. So, uh, in the meantime, I'll run with some more questions for for Tom here. Um, so, you you were just talking about um, you know tuning into a you know a, maybe a general target curve that you know has the mm-hmm. elevations in the appropriate spots, but um, not not being necessarily bound by that for the for the benefits or for the sake of letting the driver um, kind of uh, indicate what might be best for it. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask about, we, we spoke about this a little bit ago, but I wanted to ask about, you know, tuning uh, preferences for different audiences um, and how, you know, the Luna might be more suited to one audience versus another. And um, it, it seems to me like, I mean, this isn't just a, um, this isn't just like, you know, a one-off example. I think there's lots of examples of, you know, certain regions in the world, certain audiences um, valuing, you know, a different type of tuning from maybe the standard, you know, Harman preference curve. And that maybe some of this research actually has been done already. But I just wanted to get your take on, you know, what it's like to 
kind of hold those two ideas in mind of, you know, we want to, uh, you know, tune maybe in, in a way that's optimal for this one market, uh, this one target market, but then at the same time, uh, you know, we also want to keep the driver's characteristics, uh, you know, optimal f- uh, for what it is. Um, I just want to get your kind of take on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've definitely seen uh, localized preferences to certain types of uh, sound signatures. Um, for example, mm-hmm. we'd, uh, we've been in the Japanese market for quite a while now. Um, and their tastes are very slightly different from the tastes of uh, people in mainland China, which is mm-hmm. basically our largest market. Um, and, and that's different further still um, from from what you know is generally uh, accepted in, in for say say North America right um, and I don't know if there's a a, a a straight answer to 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 figuring out like why it is this way right um, I think I think there are a lot of people who have said a lot of things about why this might be. Um, some people have said that, oh, um, in China, um, they tend to value like a really girly sounding voice. Mm-hmm. And and so, so upper mid frequencies are boosted more than 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 then they, they are not. So it'd be like a uh, cultural difference there for, you know, what's appreciated yeah. in terms of the music and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not sure it counts for all of these differences. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I, I'm really not sure. Uh, in, in general, I think what, what people uh, tend to go for is a fairly even sound, right? Um, it, and, and, and I think it has to deal or, or I th- personally, I think it has to do with how well, or what types of like, what, what excites us, um, fundamentally in, in terms of music. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for instance, my personal preference is that I really enjoy, um, really upfront vocals. So. Um, I'll see myself preferring earphones that that really have like a nice boosted um, 800 to to 2k region. Right. Um, and and so so that really helps me center myself around the music because I listen to a lot of stuff with um, with a probably usually a single um, vocalist. And, and a lot of different instruments around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and so, so maybe it is that, that a lot of people will tend to prefer different sound signatures um, in that way. Right. So Based I on the music ha- they're listening to and yeah. the things they yeah. enjoy in the music. Yeah. 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 And, and so, like, I, I think a lot of people um, have said that uh, Chinese earphone makers tend to really like to boost that uh, two to four K region quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are, it, maybe it's, it is partially cultural, but 
perhaps it is also because of um, sort of a, a a a historical vestige of of the fact that a lot of these companies used to um, used to be OEM plants. Mm. And so what they used to do was tune to a certain target curve. And, and what that target curve used to be was was uh, diffuse field or right. free field. And, and so both diffuse field and free field tend to have quite a bit of boost um, in that three to five cave region. Um, and so that might be partially it as well. Right. Um, okay. People are just used to tuning that way. That might be another... Uh, reason why so it, it it almost like borders on you know people are used to hearing this a certain way because mm -hmm. things used to be tuned this way and so that just became the norm yeah um and then now that's just what yeah everybody sort of expects to hear <laughs> it's mm -hmm. kind of i think that's i think somewhere sean olive is crying a little bit about <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I mean i don't i don't have the right answer um yeah. i don't know what the answer is um but but it definitely does seem to have um well i i seem to have seen this um with with uh japanese earphones mm -hmm. uh because what i um what they used to do was tune very much to a sort of free field response right um and and, and so it was clear that that japanese earphones all had a very s sort of similar curve right around two to five k um and, and and if sometimes if you looked at interviews with Japanese acoustic engineers, they would you know sort of bring up the free field response curve, um, and and that was the first time that I was sort of clued into okay maybe that might be why um, everyone just used to tune that way, um, and eventually you know they would shape their responses to sort of suit uh, suit their target audience better right uh i think we have crin back now uh i think uh, he's on his he's on his phone hey how's it going man everything good yeah 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 uh, not sure why, why my pc is uh, going haywire but here i am on my phone. <laughs> all right i'll just turn you up a little bit here um now that Crin's back, we could maybe get into some of the uh, measurements-focused discussions because I had lots of questions for Crin as well. Um, and by all means, Crin, if you have any questions for Tom or vice versa, feel free to you know, jump in. But I wanted to get both of your guys' take on uh, IEM measurements um, for a couple of reasons. But uh, I'm not sure if everybody's seen this, but Jude posted recently a an article on head five about um, the benefits of the BNK 5128 for measurements and the benefits of it over the traditional 711 standards. And for anybody who's watching, there's sort of been a traditional way of measuring headphones and IEMs with a traditional, with um, the, the 711 standard, but that was never really designed to be accurate up, you know, above like, you know, eight to 10 K Hertz. Uh, and now with the 5128, we have, accuracy all you know, for the entirety of the range there um, and so you know Jude's you know, point with this is that you know now we we finally have a new measurement standard for accuracy um, you know beyond what we were used to with the the 711 uh, standard and it made me think because he posted a number of um, graphs there showing um, 
what I imagine is the halfway resonance showing up for, I think he, it was like the W80 or W60 from Westone. Um, and, you know, it, it, this is something that, uh, Kryn, you've written extensively about and for, you know, how you're able to get consistency with, you know, the resonance there, which ends up showing up around like 8K hertz. Um, and that, you know, this isn't as much of a problem necessarily as the variance shows. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking about, maybe we can get to this, uh, but it's, it's, you know, is this something that the RA0 or 402 can fix? Um, and, you know, does this kind of salvage the, uh, the 711 uh, standard a little bit, at least when it comes to IEM? So I'll, I'll, you know, direct that question to, to Kryn, first of all, because we haven't heard from you yet, <laughs> but this is, this is for both okay. of you guys. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, the, the way that I, okay. To, to preface everything, I am not an audio engineer. I'm definitely, you know, not learned in this uh, topic. So my my perspective is that of an end user rather mm -hmm. than the actual researcher or, or academic that people expect me to be if I'm actually not. So from what I'm seeing for, for the response of this uh, growing care, five, was it 5128, yeah. correct? Uh, my biggest issue is not really about the treble; it's about the bass response. Mm. And if you if if you look at it across the board, all of the all of the 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 measurements that the five one two eight generates all have this weird suppression of the bass. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So Jude I argues. Have, I have I something even... to talk about for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. So, so Jude argues that it is more accurate, uh, but the, the way that I see it is that it, well, we, we, we have not put pen to paper on exactly what the human perception is versus the measured perception is. So from what I'm seeing, this is, this is a very radical change, uh, not necessarily a change that I wholly agree with because we have been using the 7-11 standard for so long. It just makes no sense to change and, uh, well, change in the case of, for the, sorry, against the case of precision. Because everyone else is using it, the data that has been generated now has all been on 7-Eleven. Uh, throwing another standard into the mix just muddies up the mm -hmm. measurement waters all over again. And, and we're going to go back to square one, where it's like, oh, you know what, this this graph comes up and people are going to ask, like, hey, uh, this where, where did this come from? What standard is it on? Right. Uh, which is which was the case for headphones and was not actually the case for IEMs because for the most part, whenever an IEM measurement comes up, you can almost always assured, be assured that it would be on 7-Eleven unless you know, it was a DIY and it's very obvious that the data was gathered on like a standard short copper tube or whatever. Mm -hmm. So my, my case for, sorry, my case against the 5128 is not necessarily about its accuracy, which which I am kind of doubtful for, but I, I can't say too much about it because I don't have the research with me right now. But mm -hmm. rather I'm arguing for uh, it's arguing for precision. Where why why go against this standard that everyone else has already adopted over the last ten or twenty years? Mm -hmm. it doesn't really uh, make too much sense, but this is head five. Honestly speaking, whatever that they adopt, I don't think it's going to become the industry standard because they release, what, five graphs a year? 
they mm-hmm. they don't have that much pull over the industry in in this particular aspect unless Jude uh, magically manages to create a whole database all of his own. But at this case, uh, most flat plate as well as other Seven Eleven DIYs are going to have more influence over this aspect at least. Right. So it's more about you know the the uh, comparability aspects uh, that make it useful for the end user um, than the uh, ultimate comparability as well as uh, actually measuring. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't you can't really can't really read data that hasn't that doesn't right. exist. Right. Availability of of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tom, you'd mentioned that you know there so, was. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll let you finish there. Uh, I mean, this is just like a final point. Like, so, yeah. So it, you could have like this new five one two eight with better accuracy or, or sort of purportedly better accuracy, but it's completely useless if you don't actually use it or at least use it often enough. Because as far as I know, in terms of IEMs, uh, I can count the number of IEMs that Jude has measured on even on the RA zero four zero two with two hands. Right. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so go ahead. Um, yeah, let me um, let me start off by saying I think the research done by Brew and Care uh, is really, really, it, it's it's very elegant, um, and I think they've put in a ton of effort into uh, making, uh, producing this research. And then and by you know, as a result, they've made the fifty one twenty eight from you know what they've they've done uh, but i want to remind everyone that you know re- irrespective of whether you know we use a 711 a RAO 402 or 5128 that these are all just tools right and and you know earlier um, i i mentioned that our acoustic engineer you know, it doesn't, you know, doesn't start off with that target curve, right? Right. He tries to figure out, you know, what he wants out of his drivers and what he wants out of his sort of um, overall signature um, before he actually starts tuning to a curve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, in most cases for, for at least for, um, I want to say boutique designers, which is, you know, 90% of companies that we talk about, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's not that important what, uh, what the designer uses. Right. Um, so, so it doesn't really matter, you know, whether the 5128 is more accurate if a company or a hobbyist can get sort of consistent, and reliable enough results from what they're using, right? Right. The important thing, though, is that we need to know what the limitations are for each sort of measurement rig or standard, right? So, so we must remind ourselves that that you know when we're interpreting 711 coupler measurements, which are you know, you know, which are copious, uh, that that it is not very reliable beyond eight kilohertz. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that even, you know, below a hundred Hertz, um, I think there are discrepancies, um, that, that can be identified. Uh, so, so, so this is the kind of thing that, that I think, 
we, we must be careful about. Like when we're talking about measurements, right, um, that when something is measured on a 7-Eleven coupler, we, it, it can't be reliable, like we can't reliably extrapolate that the measurement information into what we're hearing unless, you know, we have heard it ourselves. Right. And I think that's something that's very important for, for a lot of people who are just starting off in this hobby, right? Um, a lot of people will ask me um, for measurements of our earphones, right? And, and we don't post them publicly usually uh, because it's very difficult to explain the intricacies of, of what <laughs> they're seeing on right. paper. Um, you know, most people are not like Kryn and or, or not like you, you know, who are used to seeing those measurements. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they'll often ask me, you know, questions that, that maybe we might find very basic, but, but they don't, they haven't had time to really digest what it means to have uncompensated, um, measurements, right? What it means to, you know, what, what a half wave resonance means or mm -hmm. what a quarter wave resonance means. Uh, and, and if we, I, I think what, what we all should tr try to do is just educate more. And, and get people to really understand what they're seeing on paper. Um, and, and, and if we can get to that point, I, I think it doesn't really matter what we use. Mm -hmm. um, until then, I think um, there's a lot of um, misconceptions that can crop up, right? So um, let me just use the example of the Luna, right? So Jude posted um, RA0402 measurements of, of the Luna, um, a few months ago. Right. And that I think led to a lot of people thinking that it had um severe roll off <laughs> on 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 in especially in the treble, right? And and that's partially because um what the RAO four oh two does is intentionally dampen any type of resonance peaks mm -hmm. um made or produced by the um the branching of the um Zwislocki design. And so, so, so that leads to sort of people thinking, oh, maybe it has no treble, right? Um, and I think, you know, anyone who's actually heard the Luna can, you know, will we'll be able to say that, no, it does have treble. It is relaxed, but, but it still has treble. Um, and, and so I think when we don't know how to interpret something, um, such as an RAO 402 measurement, Right, it leads to a lot of um, room for misinterpretation, um, mm -hmm. and so I think any rig, right, um, one can make the case that an RAO402 is better for certain in, um, certain types of measurements. So um, the reason why they actually wanted to dampen those those resonances, which um, I believe is actually for um, for measurement of distortion. So so. I think they started off with um, this design in the era of um, active noise cancellation trying um, and companies trying to make better ANC um, systems. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that it was difficult to really figure out what the distortion was when you had these huge distortion spikes really just mudding up all of their measurements. And, and so what they wanted to do was 
to have something that didn't have such strong resonance um, so that they can actually get a better reading of what their their noise levels were. Um, and so maybe for for that purpose, um, the RA0402 is, or, or O4, it doesn't really matter, 0401, 0402, 0403. <laughs> Um, they're all very much, yeah, they're all, they're all very similar. Um, and, and they probably are better for the purposes of a headphone or earphone designer looking to implement active noise cancellation. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that's one of the design goals for that type of, um, coupler, right? The other thing was that Gross really didn't want to go away from their, um, from, from their hats. And so they wanted something that was backwards, that was completely backwards compatible. Um, and so if they wanted to do something that was fully anatomically correct, so for example, like the BNK, right. um, 5128, like they, they probably couldn't have done that with, um, with the um, 0402 system. Right. So I think there are a lot of considerations, even by, by measurement companies to say, okay, we need a product for a certain type of application. Um, how do we get this product to work for our clients? And, and, and I think that was definitely one of those goals, right? But as for us, people who are just listening to earphones um, and, and hoping to get a sort of objective measurement, um, I, I do believe the onus is on us um, as a community to try to educate each other um, on what all of these measurements really mean. And, 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 all... and so I think it's difficult, but I think it is a big challenge because mm -hmm. um, it is very time consuming to actually explain all of these small intricacies. I, I'm noticing that as well, you know, especially for like over ear headphones and I'm, I'm running into, it's fascinating to learn about all this stuff because like every time I, I conduct another measurement, uh, recognizing you know certain things that show up on a frequency response that you wouldn't expect to be there if you weren't familiar with the rig. So, I, and that's the other thing I was going to say is that for a lot of this, I, I think it's also it, very important to publish uh, or to tell people you know what the rig is that's being used for the measurements and what that means because a lot of the time you know if you see just oh here's what's supposed to be a, you know a flat line and people maybe they can understand that but uh that doesn't actually accurately capture you know the reality of what's going on um i i wanted to just briefly step back to something that crin mentioned earlier about um like base level uh for the uh, 5128 um and it, it just made me think that, you know, just like what Corinne was saying, like there's because we don't necessarily have a baseline for how uh, these measurements are anchored to our hearing, uh, as in we we can recognize what's going on in the frequency response for you know different headphones and different IEMs. Uh, but that's mostly because we, we, we understand already, you know, we have this comparative like in, in Corinne's case, a database there and we know we have all those reference points. But without those reference points, it becomes a bit of a challenge to, uh, you know, for something like the B and K to come along and essentially start from scratch, because in many ways, when when we're thinking of you know headphones measure measuring a certain way in the bass, for example, and having more bass than what the B and K shows, um, that's I 
I wonder if that's largely because that's just what we're used to. Or is it that it actually just sounds that way? And I think that's something that it's it's difficult. It's a difficult question to uh, to answer um, because I have this, and this is what I wanted to get to. It's because I have the same issue when comparing measurements of the zero zero forty five and the uh, RA zero four zero two, where and those are those are basically the two gross sims. Um, and I find myself in situations where I'll go back and forth on anchoring those measurements to my experience of whatever it is. Sometimes it sounds like the measurement of the 0045 is more accurate, and sometimes it sounds like the measurement of the RA0402 is more accurate, and that's where the subjective element to me becomes so much more important because um, it, it... everything ends up just being anchored not necessarily to what the accurate measurement is, but rather the reference points that you have from other IEMs and from other headphones. And so, yeah, I I wanted to ask, I mean, I'll start with asking Kryn this, but between the two, I mean, are we, are we, is there a reason for you to get on the RA0402 train essentially for, (laughs) for your database? Or, you know, is the, does that actually potentially add more you know issues uh both because it would be challenging you know for the whole database but also you know as far as accuracy and is concerned for you uh the whole reason that i went with the 0402 is not really because of accuracy but more because of uh, i just want a bit of variance in my so-called measurement collection so at, at least when, when someone says like, oh, uh, do you have a RA0402 measurement of this? I can uh, sure. at least provide them the data. That is if I already have the IEM or headphone in my possession. Mm-hmm. So, But for the most part, my IEM database, which is currently has like 700 or 800 entries, uh, f- for future entries, I would still use my old coupler because mm. at the end of the day, it's a database. Yeah. Uh, precision and consistency above all else. I don't really care about accuracy because the whole point of my database is internal comparison. And throwing in the RA0402 measurements into the mix is just going to muddy up the waters even more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of subjectively, uh, I would say yes. The traditional Zlowski 711 couplers always always going to have extra uh resonance it's it's i don't think people are going to deny that the the question is about the magnitude of the dampening required to keep it more in line with subjective human impressions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as as thomas said uh if you look at the duty lunar graph on an ra042 it looks dark it just rolls off but on subjective listening, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds all right. I, I, I don't think that it's bright. I don't think it's dark. I think it's kind of like in the, in the middle. That's kind of like the... the for, for the treble response. Way yeah. Put it. yeah. I wouldn't call it perfect, but, you know. <laughs> but that, that that is where the RA0402, or at least what I think is its shortcoming. Mm-hmm. where it seems like it's over-dampening the resonance. And it does make the graph more readable, or, or should I say it makes the the measurement a little bit easier because 
since the resonant peaks are so dampened, you don't have to consider insertion depth as you would with mm -hmm. a traditional 7mm coupler. But because of that, uh, you get problems like this, where uh, I'll say even even on the MDRZ one, the the headphone, you know, the, the yeah, one yeah. where uh, inner fidelity and head fi got into a spat over. Right. Uh, I I don't think the peak is as large as the tra the traditional headphone rigs suggest. So this is like on the but the 10k, is... 9k hertz, 10k hertz issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I I would absolutely say that there is a peak there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as smooth as uh, what the RA042 rigs are showing. So there is there is a middle ground. But to yeah. say that the 0402 is the absolute pinnacle of accuracy is false, as as, as you would see from Headfy's back paddling on the, <laughs> the RA042 in favor of the uh, 505128. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, if, if you're on the topic of the 5128, it's quite interesting that uh, Hitfire chooses the Weststone W60, uh, uh, an IM that I despise actually, uh, for, for the reason that it measures exactly how I hear it, or at least my measurements. Because mm. if you look at Hitfire's measurements, it's neutral, it's flat, it's, it's like almost perfectly flat. And that to me, that doesn't make sense because I hear it like how my measurements measure like, which is dark, it's warm, it's yeah, thick. Yeah, they all sound there's, really warm and dark to me, yeah. There, there is so much emphasis on the lower harmonics and fundamentals to the point where everything just sounds so cloying and claustrophobic, and that mm -hmm. that is the W60 to me. So in this case, uh, the human, in terms of the human impression, the human subjective impressions, the 5128 doesn't do it for me. It's not accurate for my own case. Again, you know, as as we have seen, uh, just tiny variations in measurement in measurement rigs is going to result in huge changes. And in the same vein, just tiny variations in one's own mm -hmm. uh, human biological uh, internals are going to result in big sweeping changes as well. It's it's. I mean, that that's just a complicated way of saying that everyone hears things differently. Mm -hmm. So, I can't speak for you, but I'm speaking for myself. For for what I am, in, for from my perspective, analyzing the fifty one twenty eight and the traditional seven eleven, I think my hearing is much closer to that of the seven eleven and the RA zero four zero two. The fifty one twenty eight always generates measurements that uh, I don't know, just don't seem very accurate to to me. They're not as I mean, closely matching they, they your might... experience. Yeah, I mean that. I mean a lot of a lot of people in the hobby likes to throw around the word of like, oh, it's a subjective hobby, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, th this this is me throwing in my sub the subjective <laughs> element into the objective uh, measurements talk. I, I, the fifty one twenty eight doesn't do it for me. I see, I see Tyler smiling up there in the corner. <laughs> yeah. So. Um... So I just sent everyone a link, um, and while I mean obviously we're not going to be doing like a journal reading here, um, but um, <laughs> it's the link is basically to a a, a paper that BNK's um, researchers published on what their findings were when they tried to test uh, the the ear canal impedance of all of their I, I believe it's forty four different subjects 
that they tested. Um, and, and in it is, um, and this is something that I think is really valuable. It's, it's, a, it's actually the raw data from this research, not actually the 5128 itself. Uh, what they ended up doing um, in the research was they compared the average uh, ear canal impedance of the subjects they tested against what the impedance of the 711 coupler was. Mm. And so they started to identify what the differences were. And I think that's when they started realizing that they needed to redesign the coupler from the ground up. So um, regarding sort of um, the base and, and, how, um, and how the 5128 seems to underestimate the base, it is reflected basically in the research itself that, that um, there is a deviation of the ear canal impedance in the base frequencies. Hmm. Um, starting from around, I, I want to say, 200 hertz, um, all the way down to, to 35 hertz, which is the, basically the lower limit of what BNK tested. Um, and there's a dip, there's a deviation um, between 1k to 5k, um, in which it results in, if you look at the um, the diffuse uh, field response of the BNK, um, yeah. it's not called the hats. Um, what they call it, um, the BNK, it's, uh, I don't remember what they call it. Um, yeah, their head and torso so simulator, oh. um, actually has a different diffuse field response from what originally, um, what it originally was in the 4128C. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and because it reflects these differences, um, between their new sort of target response and and their the, the old one that that was based off the 711 standard um so actually i highly recommend that that you guys take a look at the differences because it's i think it's very revealing mm. um of what the differences are between real years and 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 what the 711 is and and sort of it, it actually i i think it will actually help crin in in identifying how maybe in the future he could um, target um, his resonance resonances mm -hmm. to to try and get even more consistent findings, right? Um, because one of the advantages of the research that they did was that they took um, they 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 made occluded ear molds of each subject, right? And they targeted a very specific uh, distance uh, to the ear canal. Um, or to sorry, sorry to the eardrum, mm -hmm. and basically they tried to find this happy medium around 22 millimeters, um, which is usually right around the first and second bends of of the um, ear canal. And even then, they they had trouble sort of getting that exact target, um, because you know for comfort's sake and and just measurement variations. But what they tried to do was that they always tried to target a half wave resonance of around 9.4 kilohertz and and they've reached that frequency number from averaging and analyzing all of their different uh, data points um to see okay 9.4 kilohertz is around what everyone's um uh, uh half wave resonances are mm -hmm. and and so so this is actually very telling because um this means that there is a range of different half-wave resonances between different ears, right? If if you actually go in and look at the the data, right, um, 
what they actually do to get everyone's um, half-wave resonance to align at 9.4 kilohertz was they use a, a, a differential equation um, called the, the, the Webster's Horn equation. And then what they, they put a two-dimensional extension to that equation um, because the, the Horn equation is usually one-dimensional. And they end up calculating sort of, if I have a resonance at this specific frequency, and I try to move all of the frequencies upward or low or, or downward, like how would like how would all of these uh, frequencies change? And, and they use this equation to try to do that. And, and, and that's how they got everything to align similarly. And I think what we can actually do, um, and maybe if B and K end up being very, very generous, they'll actually, you know, do an applet um, and 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 be able to help um, help 7-Eleven um, users right. <laughs> sort of recalibrate their findings to what their 5128 findings are. Right? It, it won't be exactly the same, um, but but I think we will get closer to having comparable measurements. That I mean, to me, it's still there's always that question of agreement with with experiences and where those yeah. are anchored to. And but what you're saying then, I mean, from this paper, was it was it that they took subjective reports of like what people were saying was more or less emphasized for base response? Was that where that came from? No, no. Okay. Um, this is actually from the the impedance measurements that they did, right? Oh, so, so they, they actually, they, okay, from individual yeah. people. I get what you're mm -hmm. saying, okay. Yeah. Um, for, for yeah. a second, I thought this was more like, you know, some of the Harmon research, but actually, like, they took the, the actual ear, ear from a number of different subjects. I got you. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. This is anatomical research that, so, yeah, so yeah, they yeah. did a frequency sweep from 35 to, I, from 35 hertz to, I think, 25 kilohertz. Right. Um, for every single person. Right. Um, and I think there are some issues with the BNK research, and I should just point that out really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I think, first of all, um, the population was very, very homogenous. So mm -hmm. I, I, um, the BNK engineer told me that they were basically the test subjects were all BNK employees, and that makes sense, right? You're not gonna. I thought you were gonna like, say they're all gonna base heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so they took they took these 44 people, right? Um, and they were basically all of Danish descent. Um, and I, I think there is a measure of, you know, like different population, uh, mm -hmm. the, yeah, population level differences between different sort of ethnic groups in terms of ear anatomy. Um, and and so, so I think that is a question mark, right? The sample that they're taking from is very, very local to one area of the globe. Is this data necessarily applicable to the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. That remains to be seen, right? There's not enough data out there to indicate that, you know, what they found is not applicable, but there's not enough data to say that it is. Right. So, you know, yeah. Um, so that's a big question mark. The other question mark is, they use occluded um, molds, right? So basically like a custom in-ear monitor stuck inside each subject's ears. Uh, how does that necessarily change sort of the the way standing waves um, interact um, right. within the ears, right? Um, 
because I think what we're seeing in the 5128 responses is that because they're using an a anthropometric ear canal, right? Um, we're seeing a lot of sort of shaky, squiggly differences in in the base and the lower mid range, right? Mm -hmm. And and that has to do with the fact that you know the ear canal is 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 bent and and that it is squishy, right? And the mathematics of what they used was that the horn equation itself is supposed to be um, applicable only to a non-deformable structure, so a fully solid structure, right? And and I realized the complexity of the math um, involved would be just enormous if right. they tried how to account for and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's a big concern, right? Like how does uh, cartilaginous tissue mm -hmm. right and and also you know at least to the inner part of the ear canal how does the bony part and the cartilaginous tissue contribute to the change in in sort of the way we perceive base frequencies and right. even treble frequencies i think this is a big it, it, it's not easy to answer right and i think b and k have done a very admirable job of trying to answer these questions but obviously you know, it, there's never a perfect way of doing the science. Right. I mean, that, that seems like a, a very interesting, like methodological point where, uh, I mean, on, on two of those, I mean, the, uh, like the, the custom in-ear design, I mean, that on its own, I think would indicate some sort of difference there. Um, but yeah, Kryn, I wanted to get your take on some of this stuff. Um, uh, both both that but also I have another question for you a uh, afterwards as well because uh, I was just thinking about you know different headphones having or different IEMs showing uh, at least as far as the measurement is concerned on both the 711 uh, both versions of the 711 and also the uh, 5128 um, and you know how the different uh, measurements will potentially uh, either as a result of the damping right um, they'll potentially either show a false null or they will miss on the other side of it. Depend, you know, so if you're using the 0045, you'll see the peak there that isn't necessarily there. And with the RA402 and now potentially the 5128, um, you have you have an opportunity or you, you, you potentially see, uh, you know, you, you miss something like that. And this causes certain issues because not all headphones or IEMs have a bump at the same place or not all they don't all elevate or dip right in that area and so this i think is something where it i mean this goes back to tom's point where you really need to communicate <laughs> everybody needs everybody who's doing these kind of measurements really needs to work hard to try and communicate what this means and where the differences will lie but we can get to that i wanted to get first your take on you know what, what tom just mentioned about the 5128 and the base response uh okay so, uh, the base response yes uh <laughs> Okay, so uh, let let me let me just go go back to what I was thinking when I was when I was reading this paper because I think I've just read through or at least quite briefly what paper was. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, most of us are going to read the graphs in a sort of semi-compensatory way, right? Mm -hmm. So, even in the IEM's world where compensations are not that popular, there's still some form of internal compare sorry internal co compensations that everyone 
every one of us is going to engage in whenever we look at a raw graph. Yeah. And in terms of headphones, uh, there's always going to be diffuse field, Harmon, and uh, free field, and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of these target curves, all of these compensation curves, are all derived based on the rig that they are generated on. Correct. So mm-hmm. if you have a if you have a grass rig or a grass schema, is uh, the, the the diffuse field response is going to be derived out of that specific schema. Yeah. If you have uh, hats from Bruin Care, it's gonna the the DF response is going to be generated based off of that uh, dummy hit. So it's because of this. That's why I think uh, having something like the 5128 is not going to be that much of an issue because when you recompensate it back into a, a, a neutral target curve, for example, uh, the 5128 right. compensated to the 5128's diffuse target curve, it's going to look somewhat similar to... Uh, the the grass schemas compensated DF curve, right? I or am I missing something? Like like because it seems like this is a simple solution. Just use the calibrated target curve that the manufacturer provides you, and you should get a similar ish compensated curve afterwards. With potential for more accuracy. Yeah, I mean accuracy it would be is applicable. Separate, but... Yeah, I think that would be applicable for uh for frequencies not above like say six kilohertz because that's when really the um um when yeah 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 we start getting those approximations yeah yeah, this is more like addressing the base issue Mm -hmm. so the base issue should be compensated out the moment you put in like their own calibrated diffuse field target but in terms of the treble in terms of the treble like uh that that one is i okay for me, when it comes to treble, precision takes even more of a priority. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really care about accuracy above six k, seven k, eight k, or wherever the the resonant frequency is. And and that, and that's another not say problem that I have with the Bruin Care uh, paper. In fact, I think it is much more indicative of what I'm doing. Is that even in a research paper such as this, they are normalizing the resonant frequency at 9.4 mm. uh th- th- this is very crucial because I-, I know a lot of people have been giving me flack for saying like like why like, why do i publish measurements at a specific resonant frequency when you know different ims fit differently or whatever whatever no it's it's all about precision even Bruin care does it everyone else who's doing a paper does it they have to normalize the, the resonant frequency else you cannot differentiate between coupler resonance and driver resonance and mm-hmm. that is even worse especially when it comes to something well it's not as bad on the re 0402 because there is no resonance or at least there's very minimal resonance to the point and uh yeah so with regards to the re 0402 uh what, what was the question again with regards to that um oh just more so on you know when we have say say in oh did we lose Kryn? i think we lost Kryn. <laughs> uh i'll i'll defer to tom on on on, on that uh question for now but basically there the there's situations where you have uh maybe there's a peak there at 8k hertz and then you use something like uh oh quinn's back okay i'll i'll rephrase we good Hello. yeah 
Um, yeah, so I'll give you an example. Maybe we have a an IEM that has a peak there at uh, 8K hertz. And, you know, you have something like an RA0402 that dampens it. And in, what you're saying is that, you know, there's a potential that it can over dampen this. And then we're not just showing information or data that's potentially uh, not accurate above 8K hertz or at 8K hertz because of this damping, but then also it's potentially misleading. The flip side of this, I think, would be if you have, you know, something that shows a, uh, uh, say you're measuring the same IEM on an RA, or on the uh, 0045 that has the coupler resonance there, this is going to show the more strong elevation for that same peak that exists there. I think the question in my mind is, which is sort of the lesser of two evils here? Do we overrepresent something that exists there, uh, or do we underrepresented right if if in the case of the um ra zero four zero two uh i think both of them uh have their own uses so for an expert user i would say that having something with the resonant peaks undampened would be more useful okay because at uh, least then you can see yeah yeah and 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 you provide you have to provide the necessary information in order for them to understand like mm -hmm. uh, how, how they can better interpret the data. For example, you can tell them like, oh, you know what? This insertion depth results in a resonant frequency of 10.4 kilohertz. Yes, and exactly. Look yeah, at the yeah. graph and be like, oh, there you go. But mm -hmm. in terms of the layman, in terms of um, the average graph user who probably isn't fully aware of all of these uh, minor nuances, then probably the RA0402 would be, as you said, the lesser of two evils. But right. uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it, the, bad, the bad side happens when you misinterpret the data, uh, right. especially when it comes to something like this where there's intentional damping, and then you, you pretend like, oh, you know what, this the, the, the traditional 7-11 coupler has this peak, the RA zero four zero the the RA zero four zero two doesn't have it. In fact, it shows nothing, and therefore the RA zero four zero two it's the more accurate one. And my impressions matter more because my impressions mm -hmm. line up more with the RA zero four zero two. And I think that is a very dangerous trap to be in, because your opinion your opinion on the sound is not dictated by the newest the shiniest toy on the measurement market. Right. Right, you can't just you can't let the the measurements, uh, you know, it indicate justify your yeah, yeah or yeah, at yeah. least pretend that your opinions are of a higher quality than others. Right, that, that that's like you know, being, uh, yeah, just 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 being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, I want to uh, we've we've been going now for about an hour and a half, but I, I want to get some questions from the chat. Um, Tyler, I think you're still muted on your. On, on your mic let me see if we can unmute tyler here and maybe we can pull some questions from the from the chat um uh, unless oh there we go yeah um unless um, first do either crin or tom do you guys have any questions for one another or i can start it off with you guys and then we can move to the chat well i mean like i, I think we might have had this conversation before. Um, so, like, Crin and I, like, know each other from before. But, um, like, I always was unsure why um, 
you chose that eight kilohertz um, target. The um, normalization there. I like. I think it's something of you know, like from you know, about oh, I, like I did it. That... I, I I I chose eight because it was the easiest to hit consistently. Uh -huh. That's it. That's because it. of there you know, no... like the length of the coupler and all that stuff, right? Like yes. it's like the most yep. con. Like okay, all right. That's what I thought. Okay. The I, no, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and when when I tell when I tell people this, they they sort of being like, "Oh my god, this is this is wrong. Like you can't just choose the one that is the easiest to hit." And I'm like, "No, I I just want to hit eight. That's it. I, right. I don't I don't need anything else." Yeah. Yeah. So so that's what I was saying about the the um the equation, right? The the equation that they mm -hmm. use to sort of propagate to sort of shift resonant frequencies. That's actually very mm -hmm. useful, right? Um. If anyone needs to shift their resonance frequencies to align with your measurements, or or they want to shift your measurements to align with what they hear, wait, um, did they did they share that's it? That's actually a useful like tool. No, I don't think so. You you actually have like oh. you know like in order to do those calculations, <laughs> they, you'd yeah, have they, to uh... have like you know like console finite element analysis, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe, so, one so, maybe one day, maybe one Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that would be actually very, very valuable, um, to, to try and figure out, you know, why, like, because a lot of people come to me, right, um, and, and say, like, oh, I hear a peak at this frequency, right, and then the other person's like, no, I don't hear that, like, it's higher up, and, and, you know, there's a never-ending debate yeah. about who hears what at what frequency, right? Um, and, and and I think this is one of those things where one day we we should try to find a, a means of trying to reconcile these differences, right? It might not be a perfect means of doing it, but but we should try to find one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I hope uh, this is what I hope, like from this research, um, that you know a company. Maybe it's BNK, maybe it's someone else. They will find a way to try to, you know, let us at least, you know, get clued in on 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 why we hear, you know, th these things differently, right? Part of it stems from the fact that not all of us um can fit in ears in, in at the same depth, right? Right. So one of the things that I try to do whenever I fit in a new earphone is that I I actually do try to fit it in as deeply as possible but not everyone tries to do that they i would say most people just try to fit it in um to a depth at which they're most comfortable yeah comfort yeah um and and that i think contributes to a lot of differences in the way they hear things um and then maybe this will segue into like you know whether tips and uh, how tips affect sound and all that good stuff but mm -hmm. um but first i think what what I want to say is that um, even in the data that that BNK published, uh, we noticed that uh, people with you know highly variable canal sort of diameters will will end up having more variances in in, in the way their their yeah. resonance peaks are 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 manifested in 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 the measurements, um, and so like maybe someone with a tapering your canal versus someone with a a canal that ends up getting bigger um these things will all affect the way um 
that the ear canal impedance will 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 be measured. Um, yeah, of course. And that will inevitably translate to um, differences at you know at least at the eardrum. But let's not forget the fact that you know our auditory system is not just the external ear. Our auditory system extends all the way to the brain, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of processing that goes on there to try and smooth out these differences. Um, and, and there's a reason why, you know, like we are so well programmed to detect babies crying mm-hmm. and, and, and other frequencies. Um, these are things that happen exclusively within the brain and the inner ear. Um, and, and so, and so this is a, an extremely complex question that, that we can't just solve with saying, oh, we have a better measurement system now. Um, and, and so while I think, yes, it's great that they have a new system, I think it's just even better if we could just use what we've learned and, and continue to educate people on, on, on mm. what we know now, how to interpret the data that we have existing and 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 how do we continue to get better at at interpreting this data um and and personally i just feel that that's the direction that that we should move in right i um personally yeah. to me i don't think it's particularly important about you know to to debate over you know what you know what people should be using mm-hmm. because it it's not like it, it's about you know how how well we can interpret this data, and, and how well stuff. do we know? Yeah, yeah, and and how do we, do we know what we still don't know? So every mm-hmm. single time I read one of these papers, and and I've read a lot of them over the years, um, I just feel like there's always one or two new things that that I'm not sure about, right? And things that I previously thought I knew, now I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so, mm-hmm. um. I think it's very important to acknowledge, um, for everyone to acknowledge what they don't know. Um, right. And, and, and that's, I think, a more healthy um, attitude to take um, when approaching um, a hobby as sort of uncertain as as audio. Right. Um, definitely. I. It's it's funny that just you mentioned the. Uh the shape of the ear canal and all that uh, this is something that actually i see metal 571 in the chat and we talked about this a lot and i've talked to Corinne about this as well but you know given the all the mental apparatus that's going on with you know compensating for the various different resonances and gain factors that our ears have you know you think that there would be more agreement there for how we hear things but as it turns out with it feels to me at least that with iems there's so much more variance and disagreement um you know and I wonder if part of this uh, has to do with there being less or f- being fewer gain factors with IEMs compared to over your headphones. Again, I asked, I asked Chris this, uh, Corinne this the same question, but um, you know, to me, it it seems like there could be two answers to this. One could be, you know, now that there's only uh, or now that there's fewer gain factors, uh, they matter more. Uh, but the other could be also that there's now interaction with now there's more actual physical interaction with one of those gain factors, meaning that, you know, for insertion depth and stuff like that, and, you know, the, how far in you can push the, you know, the IEM, um, 
that actually does like in some cases maybe it'll actually you know push up against the ear canal um and or or you know for edematic stuff you know it goes really far in <laughs> um and, that's, and, that's, yeah go ahead a pretty simple explanation for mm -hmm. that which is like okay so for a headphone uh the reference okay so for the reference point is always a two-channel system right or speakers or whatever mm -hmm. you call it and for headphones you are immediately bypassing the head and the torso so yeah. that is the gain factor that the manufacturer or, or should i say the driver the, the diaphragm or the system itself has to guess for you so uh if if they guess wrongly the or should I say, if if their guess is not this is is not uh what should I say does not hit your actual game factor, then the headphone sounds unnatural. Yeah. Now con contrast this with IEMs, where now you're not only just bypassing the head and the torso, you're also bypassing the pinophlange as well as part of the ear canal. Mm -hmm. So now the 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 earphone itself, the manufacturer whoever else has to guess the game factor of all of these components for you specifically. So that means that an I an IEM would that sounds natural for one person would probably not sound that natural for another person simply because uh, the IEM itself is basically ha has to compensate for right. all of these missing gain factor because and, that's because they're you, know, you don't have them they're yeah. bypassed and so I, that makes perfect sense that's yeah. something I hadn't thought about before so yeah so 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 ER4 the ER4 is just going to be an averaged response it's it's diffuse field sure but it's diffuse field made out from a mm -hmm. most likely a, a grass a grass chemo or whatever mm -hmm. so that it's it's going to emulate the average and for most people we're not going to be average we're going to be close some of, but some of us may be outliers and therefore something that like ER4 uh, may not sound very yeah. natural but you give something like really wonky or at least in theory very wonky you give it to them and they say oh it sounds very natural now mm -hmm. and in that sense I can get it because like yeah you know what you have different ears or should I say it's not just you have different ears you have a different head you have a different body mm -hmm. all of this contributes to you getting a different right uh sound yeah. yeah this is sort of like it's kind of like the opposite of what i was thinking like it's it's all the rest of the gain factors that now have to be assumed because that's what your personal hrtf has been or you know what your brain mm -hmm. has been compensating for all along and now that you, that's no longer a factor you know it, it has to be assumed and that can lead to you know variants <laughs> Um, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Basically, yeah, I I I agree with uh, what what Krin is saying. Um, that's exactly basically he couldn't have put it better. Uh, one of the things that I would add is that you know we as humans were not you know we we weren't meant to have our ears occluded, right? We we're meant to have our ears fully opened yeah. and and listening to all our environmental cues. Mm -hmm. And so that's what our brains are most attuned to. Um, and so when we take that away, right, ev everything sort of starts getting into the uncanny valley, right? right. In, in the sense that if we're simulating all these things and they're not simulated in a way that we're used to, then nothing sounds quite right. And that's one of the reasons why 
some people who are very used to speakers they they just they can't, can't ever yeah. get used to headphones or or earphones right and and when they do get into them like they're not always the most consistent sort of um judges of of what good or bad is um because they're they're they they just can't get used to it mm -hmm. um and and so like what you know from the manufacturer side um i i think this is the 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 challenge and almost the art of 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 tuning right um when we try to tune things right uh we are supposing that you know our our intended response is going to appeal to the people that we most you know desire to 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 buy, to purchase this item right mm -hmm. um and, and and so if it works um right then then it will be a product that that really that that people really resonate with and and that that they'll want to purchase um and but it's one of those things that i don't think every like no one manufacturer will get it right every single time mm -hmm. um and and so as a manufacturer i think it's very important that that we try to um we, we're always willing to to look inwards and see where we can try to tweak things um right. and and you know luckily i think like we as a company like we're always trying to do that um and, and so we've been fortunate enough to try you know to to gain enough feedback that we can do certain types of responses and that a good number of people will really enjoy it mm -hmm. um the second layer beyond just tuning for different you know anatomies and different H hrtfs is that um there's the coloration of music is act is actually very important i think um most of us speaking here today tend to want to go for a more neutral response uh but not but really not like n not everyone wants that yeah um a lot of people really want excitement they want to hear something different um and or sleep bass so, <laughs> or or what mostly or what bass. bass yeah yeah mostly bass um but but not always um sometimes it's you know other components to music and and i think that is the trick um for for companies to try to build products that that do appeal to sub segments of the population um no one earphone is ever going to satisfy everyone right um so it's more prudent to to sort of you know have a little bit more you know of a scattered approach to you know, yeah what, you know, targets you're trying to hit uh, yeah yeah that that makes actually a lot of sense and this is like i've talked about this in the past but it's like the the uh uh the uh, what malcolm gladwell was talking about with you know developing flavors of spaghetti sauce and how you know one flavor of spaghetti sauce is not actually uh what we what we want and it's it's the, the wrong idea to try and just develop for one type of preference we really need to just look at what emerges from the data for people's preferences and then develop for all of those um yeah 
but I, I uh, we've been going for quite a bit now. I know Tyler has to go at around noon, so <laughs> I wanted to just see if we could maybe jump in and get a few of the questions from the from the chat here. Uh, we could, I, I'm sure, keep going on for a long time. I have actually so many more questions for you guys, <laughs> but um, I can always jump off and you can continue. That, well, yeah, we, we also have to yeah cut it at around <laughs> noon anyways, just because of you know podcast length. But <laughs> uh, was there anything that jumped out from the chat that we want to talk about? Um, they've been kind of just having a chat to be honest having a chat um, right on <laughs> um, it's good to see everybody the very, in there by the way yeah uh, a lot of really good people in there um uh there was a question early on i believe for tom regarding carbon fiber oh yes uh, I saw that. um iems and so that's the only one i've really that really stood out right off the bat mm-hmm. um also someone asked about kren's uh iem tip preference um, but I pointed them in the direction of where he already makes those statements. So, awesome. um, so unless there's any other questions in the thread, uh, that come up now, let's go ahead and answer, ask them now and we'll start to <laughs> I see one on THD. Sure. Yeah. We could, we could hit, well, yeah. Why don't we, uh, not we do that and then we'll get Tom to answer on the, uh, carbon fiber question. Sure. Uh, so yeah, let me really quickly oh, okay. address that. Um, so I, I assume what from what he's saying is that he wants a, a diaphragm that is made f- from carbon fiber, right? That's potential. And hmm. okay, so I think there are a few issues with that, right? First of all, um, if you look at at, at least for in ears, right, uh, diaphragms are basically anywhere from as small as three millimeters to as large as sixteen millimeters. Right, that that those these are the two extremes, and they're usually around eight to ten millimeters in size. Right, that is not actually the real size. Right, um, everyone counts the entire system, so they don't account for the surround. Right, the if we want to use something like carbon fiber, it's exclusively for the center dome portion, and and that would further subtract um you know at least a couple of millimeters from the the, the ends right so let's say you, you start off with a nine millimeter driver right you would have to have a circle of you know around six and a half millimeters in diameter mm-hmm. right um and i don't think they like i don't think carbon fiber actually um comes that small Right, um, it, you actually have to have woven fibers put together and impregnated in a a particular um, resin material to get that specific strength. Right? They talk about different, you know, like if anyone's into bikes or 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 race cars, right? They talk about different layups to carbon fiber. This is actually, you know, quite thick, and and. I don't think we can get a driver to that, you know, level of, you know, to that level of thickness. I think the mass would be too high. Um, it, it, we would have to use like an extremely strong magnet, and um, and and it'd just be really difficult to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the fact that carbon fiber doesn't exist on its own, right? It exists with that resin and how does that resin actually affect the way um, it reproduces sound. So I think there are a lot of challenges to having a carbon fiber uh, diaphragm driver. Um, 
and and that's why I would say most earphone manufacturers tend to go toward different types of coating, um, right. and and that's what you know. See, you like know, helps. The... Graphene would be was I was gonna say would be an yeah. interesting one. Yeah, I saw the one graphene. From... Um, with the nano, the carbon nanotubes on the um, the, the, oh, carbon the yeah on um, the, mm-hmm. the Starfield and all those as well. Yeah, we've had a carbon nanotube driver um, earphone as well, um, and and we actually look at like these coatings are actually all available um, um, to pretty much every mm-hmm. single uh, manufacturer, right? Um, because they're mostly industrial coatings. Um, they've just been reappropriated for audio use and i think the trick is to get these coatings uniform enough and at a um at a sufficient thickness so that it actually um takes on its properties right um we can't use like a one micron thickness uh coating and and just call it a day because then the diaphragm would just be you know, like it'd be slightly different from its base substrate, whether it's PT, PK, um, PN, or whatever. Uh, it, it, it would still not be enough, right? And, and so that's one of the things. Like everyone, I, I think beryllium these days is is a hot topic. Um, mm. People start talking about how oh, this thing has a beryllium driver, that thing has a beryllium driver, right? And all of them are all pretty much uh, coated um, uh, using a process called PVD. Um, but even within that process, uh, there are different variants. And and so whether you know you can coat it to three microns or to five microns or or to even thicker, because there are tricks to get even thicker than that. Mm-hmm. Um, like how uniform is that coating? I, I think that all factors into whether this thing actually behaves like beryllium um and and so to the average consumer i don't think most of them understand that and so a lot of the times some manufacturers will sort of take advantage of this um lack of understanding Um, and so i think that's one of the things that people should be wary of that that not all drivers are created the same Right. Um, on the sub, there's a lot of questions about materials and stuff like that. Um, but Android actually asks, uh, Tom, have you seen any of the uh, super thin spread spread toe carbon fiber materials coming out of Sweden? Uh, he says they're they've made some tweeter drivers recently as well. Um, yeah. I yeah I I don't really know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just I see there's so many Apologies questions. Apologies to that. Android. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I have I have another question for, for Tom as well. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the uh, with the way that uh, the the chai fi segment has been developing and encroaching, even you know mid fi, uh, at, at least as far as pricing is concerned, uh, I mm-hmm. assume that that's what this is about. Uh, do you see in the future a lot of I, uh, of the IEM market uh, in or yeah? Do you see the future of a lot of the IEM market in China, um, or is it just like uh, you know? current uh, trend i think uh, that's what this person's asking right now china um should already be the largest market for iems yeah that's what i would assume as uh, well yeah and i i think one of the reasons is that uh 
China is just urbanizing at a, an, an extremely rapid yeah. pace. And, and so people just have found the use cases to get, you know, ever better um, or to use audio equipment that is ever better. Um, and so as manufacturers, it's an incumbent upon us to to rise to that challenge, right? Like people want better sound and, and, and how do we get there? Um, and, and I think that's what all manufacturers are trying to do at least. They're, they're trying to offer products that, that potentially will yield better sound that, than, than we did six months ago or 12 mm-hmm. months ago. Um, the only issue is that the, the pace of development and, and the, the such a, there's such a wide spread of manufacturers that it's so difficult to navigate through um, everything, right? Um, and, and, and so I think eventually um, we'll get to a point where the market there will start coalescing together and we'll start to find or start to identify you know, various different brands that, that really do um, try to work on not just their product, but also their service. And, mm-hmm. and also the you know the overall experience of the brand, um, because uh, to me that's what sets a lot of these companies apart. Um, in in terms of sound and re- and sound reproduction, um, there's not a lot separating one company from another. Um, so right. so the key is after sales service and all of that stuff right i think it's the same anywhere in the world um and so so this yeah the same will be in in, in china right. um i i don't know if that answered the question but yeah no um, I, I think it does yeah. uh, it, it's funny <laughs> tyler says canada will be the next manufacturing hub <laughs> i think that's doubtful <laughs> it'll be like you know five of us sitting here and making stuff um <laughs> uh on the subject of the thd which I, this is a question that i i was hoping to get your both your guys to take on uh but for both yeah tom and crin uh, opinions on thd measurements uh what's the percent at which a headphone or iem's distortion becomes a problem in your mind uh and also is there a correlation sorry is there a correlation between low uh, thd and ability and ability for extreme eq um so like for example a planar magnetic or you know electrostatic headphones um, that kind of thing. Um, I'll, I'll let uh, Kryn start off with this one. Uh, okay, so I've actually performed some personal exper- experiments myself where I've manually added uh, harmonic distortion uh, through a door. And when I did that, I, I tried to manually calculate like uh, uh, how, how many decibels is like 0, 0. 0.1%, 0.5%, 1%, 3%. And for a pure tone, like just listening to like 200 hertz tone versus a 1k hertz tone, I think my threshold is about 3 to 5%. I forget which one it was. And with music, it goes all the way up to 10%, to 15%. Right. So... If you're talking about just raw harmonic distortion, uh, especially when you're talking about harmonic distortion that's focused mainly around uh, second harmonic, third, and fourth, mm-hmm. it is very non-destructive. Like 
or, uh, 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 yeah, it's very yeah. non-destructive. There's not a lot of, you need a lot of harmonic distortion for it to be noticeable, at least from my experiments. And in terms of whether or not there is a correlation between low THD versus uh, sound quality, I personally don't see uh, any sorry, no, it hard was, uh, links. It was EQ, EQ ability. But yes, that's another interesting one. Oh yeah, uh, EQ. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it it depends on what the distortion is based out of. So, for example, if you have an open back headphone, there's distortion in the bass regions, and in in those cases, it's it's just simply the fact that the drivers sure. are not designed to to be driven in an open air environment, and therefore, no matter how much bass or how much EQ you add to this driver. You're not going to get the desired bass response. It's just not going to happen. But if talking about IEMs, IEMs is a naturally sealed environment. In theory, you should be able to EQ every single IEM properly. But uh, that's not the case because there, there's something that that I would con that I'll call BA timbre, mm -hmm. uh, BA bass, if you will. And regardless of how much you EQ up. Uh, a BA woofer's uh, presentation, you're not going to get the same effect as you would with a standard dynamic driver. Yeah. Um, you could explain this on the THD charts. For example, most BA woofers tend to have uh, very high distortion, very high, uh, specifically third harmonic distortion, but very high is still relative in this case, because when I say very high, it's still like 0.7%. So, mm -hmm. Uh, your typical dynamic driver could hit like 0.01% or even lower than that, depending on the implementation and the materials and all that. But relatively speaking, yes, VA uh, drivers tend to distort a lot, again, relatively speaking. Uh, but I don't think that that is a one-to-one -one explanation, like a full explanation of what the hell is going on with the whole BA timbre thing. Right. Uh, because as I've said, like the experiments that I've I've created in pure tones, three five percent. But in music, which is what we all listen to, uh, it takes a lot of well lower order uh, harmonic distortion for it to be audible. If you're talking about higher order, like I don't know, tenth harmonic uh, distortion, in that case, I hear it. You can hear it at like two percent. It's quite easy, but for the driver-specific distortion, which typically manifests themselves in the very, very lower orders of harmonic distortion, nah, I, I don't see it. I don't see that correlation, unfortunately. Okay. Um, Tom, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, so in general, I, I would say I agree with Kryn in, in that um, the, the way we hear uh, we can actually tolerate a lot of distortion. Um, the real, I, the real, yeah, yeah. Um, the real, uh, the real value in seeing um, low, just um, harmonic distortion figures, is just a general indication of how much work um, uh, was put into this driver, um, and. And so basically, like one of the things is that 
in general, like if, if we look at a, a, a driver that has been designed carefully, um, it will usually have um, not only less distortion, uh, but also uh, less ringing in, in, in the um, registers that, that really matter. Um, right, that's more frequency response related yeah, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, and so these things are, are just general indications of how much care uh, was put into designing a particular driver, right? Mm. Um, but in terms of the the outputted harmonic distortion, um, we our our hearing systems can actually tolerate a lot of um, a lot of lot of distortion. Um, and so, for instance, I think at I think at 120 decibels, um, our our own auditory system produces um, distortion. Interesting. And and so yeah, and so so you know if 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 the earphones themselves are producing that same amount, like we're not going to be able to detect it out of the same amount of distortion that we're hearing. Right. Um. And so we are able to tolerate a lot of distortion. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not audible. I, 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 there are certain earphones that, that do have recognizable distortion. They don't necessarily ruin the listening experience, but if you know where to listen to it, like you'll, you'll usually hear like this odd rustling in places that, that where uh, rustling sounds should, shouldn't show up. Um, like, I, I think there was a model a few years ago um, I believe it was the um, the Audio Technica uh, LS two hundred, and that had um, uh, pretty uh, audible, yeah, pretty high distortion um, measurements in um, in the most sensitive uh, band of human hearing, which is you know around like one to four K, um, and and at least for that earphone, it is audible. Like you can he definitely hear at at you know, normal to high listening volumes uh, clues as to what the distortion is, but it will not ruin the listening experience at all. Um, so does that really matter? I don't know. Um, now, you know, addressing the whole thing about EQ, um, I, I, I don't necessarily think, especially in the way parametric EQs work these days, that that it, it, it's really going to matter um, because if it's working right, you're essentially taking away signal um, rather than, right. than than you're adding to signal. So so um, I don't necessarily think that that it's going to necessarily contribute a lot to to sort of the distortion. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, th this is all uh, fascinating. I. Um, I wish we had more time, but I do have to cut it uh, fairly short here, um, just because of you know we run out of time for doing podcasts in uh, the uh, uh, the audio format. But um, I have one final question for both of you guys, um, and it's a lot of the time there's concerns about uh, the, I see this in the comments for videos that I do on IEMs all the time. There's concerns about. Um, some uh maybe something is like you know thousand dollar iem or two thousand dollar iem like a fairly high-end iem and people get concerned about um material cost and the the 
comment that I usually see is, you know, it can't be worth the thousand dollars that the price tag is because there's no way that the material cost is anything close to that. And of course, I I always tend to think, you know, we can't, I mean, at no point in any industry is material cost something that's relevant uh, to you know, how much it should uh, it should cost. But what's your guys's take? I, I, I think that a lot of people when they when they are concerned about this, they probably just don't understand what's involved in both research and development and then, you know, bringing stuff to market. Um, I, w- I wanted to get your take on sort of that uh, concern that people seem to have. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me try and get at it really quickly. So um, let me t- use the example of the Luna. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, or maybe a m- month ago or so, um, someone who used to work in the industry and, and is now a reviewer um, sort of posted privately on a chat channel somewhere that they said that it cost us, uh, I think, the equivalent of around $120 US to build a set of Luna drivers, mm-hmm. right? And if he just caught, um, if we just count the 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 pure raw material cost for the the driver of the Luna, um, it is in that territory, right? Uh, and and so one might be thinking like if it only costs around that much why why are we charging 10 times as much for that that IM right that's a very valid question but at the same time just a tooling cost that that we've put in for um to give to materion over the last 3 years co- just tooling costs cost us well over 100 uh, almost $120,000 us right that's just for the tooling not to mention the, the fact that we need to operate the, the factory over those few years and the fact that you know we need to pay our engineers you know an, an equitable amount of salary um yeah. yeah so so like these are all realities of operating um a, a company and and i think it's very easy to, to look at just one component of, of, of the cost and say, oh my gosh, that's a ripoff. Um, but, but if you factor into all these things, I think it becomes a lot more understandable that, that you know, something like the Luna um, mm-hmm. costs so much. Um, and from the, you know, the, the goal of the company, um, at least for Dunu, um, has been two things. Number one is to always try to innovate in this sector. Um, and, and I think we've shown that time and time again that, that we've done things to try to push things forward um, for, for in-ears. The other thing is to always try to give value. And, and while it, it can be argued that, that the Luna is not, you know, in, in a monetary sense, not, not a great val- value, but I think we've learned a lot from the development of Luna such that future products can really stand to benefit and, and a lot of that has to do um, with some, some of the things that I alluded to before. Um, for example, the way we figured out how to glue the surround to the mm-hmm. diaphragm um, and all of that stuff, right? That's all going to trickle down. Um, and, and very soon, you're going to start seeing products that that's, you know, are benefiting from what we learned. Awesome. Kryn, uh, do you have any thoughts on material cost? And uh, Maybe you haven't seen these yeah. concerns, or maybe you have, um, I'm sure. I... I'm going to address the part where, where you said about why 
or should I say the commenters have talked about why IEMs would be similar in price to headphones, even though headphones have uh, a lot more quote-unquote mm-hmm. material in them. Um, I have a very simple analogy. Uh, phones and laptops, why why are phones the same, co- like, priced the same as some of the mid-tier laptops? It's, it's for the same reasons. Miniaturization mm-hmm. is going to cost some cash. It's, it's not like the the world re- revolves around pure material costs like it was the prehistoric era. Like there's there's gonna be as as Thomas said, there's gonna be a lot of little things that go beyond just simply the material costs, such as R and D tooling, other fixed costs that they have to consider. And while while they are definitely gonna be unscrupulous manufacturers who overprice a lot of their things without without any proper justification beyond i just want to earn more money and i can uh for the most part there is a lot of thought that goes into the pricing of a product be it an iem a headphone or anything else for that matter Mm -hmm. because uh there are going to be considerations for what kind of market you're going to enter in whenever you price a product. So if you price it very expensive, you're going to be entering a very niche market. Uh, It's going to be a very high margin, low volume operation, and you have to build your sales uh, around that strategy. And it's the same for if you were to price it low. In that mm-hmm. case, you'll be entering a not necessarily a mainstream market, maybe it's a slightly more prosumer market, and therefore you'll be a slightly lower margin but a slightly higher volume operation. Mm-hmm. So the the I, I I do get that there is a concern where uh, I I know some people have looked up Mauser and DigiKey and see like oh my god this EV this EV driver just costs uh twenty dollars and yet Atomotic is charging $300 for their ER4. Whereas mm-hmm. you, what they don't see is that in order for Atomotic to get that level of QC, uh, where they match, I think, 20 hertz all the way to 3K hertz, they have to bid like like 50 or so drivers for every single pair of ER4s. Right. And, and because of that, you know, they have to raise the price because that 50 drivers either go into their low end their, their lower range where they can price cheaper for obviously less matching rigor or they just simply dump it away but you know most most companies will just dump it away they just keep it keep it away and maybe use it for a future project or whatever but for that er4 that cost is those 50 or so drivers that have been away and therefore they have to raise the price even though the drivers themselves yes cost $20 each but you know just because the drivers themselves cost that much and while you as a DIYer can theoretically build an ER4 yourself <laughs> it's probably not gonna be to no. that level of channel matching or, or not even channel matching like matching to that specific automotive target curve because they match both ways it's mm-hmm. both unit unit variation control as well as channel matching control. And when you add both of these two things together, everything becomes just exponentially more expensive. Right. Um, I think we've uh, we've lost Tyler here. He's 
Oh, no, he's there. <laughs> I thought it was frozen. He was just <laughs> concentrating. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I like what you said about um, st- strategy and that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, I do usually, you know, when, when people tell me this and say, okay, I can't believe it'd be worth that because the material cost can't be anywhere near that. Yeah. My response is usually just to say, okay, well, then build it yourself and see how far you get. Uh, and then if you can produce it at a lower price, then great, right? We all win. But you know, the reality uh, is that... Yeah, there's the, another issue that I actually did discuss with a, a few other people with regards to why Chi-Fi is so cheap. Mm. And one of the reasons why is because they unfortunately skip on the QC process. Yeah. And when you skip on the QC process, you bin less drivers. Uh, you, you don't have to worry too much about having to match everything to the same uh, variations and everything. And because of that, you have a lot of problems. Like, for example, with the with the blonde BL3s, mm-hmm. very popular, unfortunately, the unit variation is through the roof because right. they price it at $40. The costs have to go, have, have to go away. They, sorry, they have to be diverted away from something. And in this case, it would be QC. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, that, that that's just how they save costs. So uh, when you buy a more expensive product, uh, that's one thing you get, which is that you are almost guaranteed or at least assured to a certain extent that you're going to get the product that was advertised or at least the product that was raved about or talked about by other reviewers without fear that's going to be any different. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, let's say a two thousand dollar IEM, I, I, and and someone says that it's really really good. You want to buy it, and if it's from a reputable company, and if they know what they're doing, most of the cost is going to go into QC, and therefore you're going to get uh, mostly the same product. Obviously, there are going to be uh, exceptions, like. You, you you would still definitely get expensive products with poor QC. I'm just saying that as a general trend, you're going to get better QC and therefore you don't have to worry too much about getting a unicorn unit versus a shorty, you know, slightly left of the target unit. So something that is representative of what the marketing suggests. Yeah. I, I mean, for it's interesting because in the audio industry uh i i don't think people look to the manufacturer's marketing right. to get an idea of what iem or headphone sounds usually they, they read reviews and uh it is much more uh it, it is much if you feel much more secure mm-hmm. if the review that you're reading and the product that you buy is going to be the same exactly yeah as opposed to you know playing the the unit variation lottery yeah yeah, um, which is definitely a challenge as well when it comes to you know all the measurement stuff that we talked about <laughs> before. Um, guys, uh, we, we probably have to cut it there. I, I do have so many more questions for both of you guys, so maybe we can do this again at some point. But uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you guys on. This is uh, one of my absolute favorite conversations that we've had. So uh, big thank you to both uh, Kryn and uh, Tom from Dunu. Uh, and thanks to Tyler for sticking around and helping out as well, of course. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, for everybody else in the chat, thanks for uh, hanging out and coming to say hi and posting your questions. Uh, we'll look forward to the next live stream here uh, next week. And uh, any final thoughts from you guys, uh, Tom and uh, and Kryn? 
Nope. Okay, so, here it is. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> I probably said it late, you know, I, I, I'm very wordy. So, yeah, I apologize for that. <laughs> no, by all means. This is great. This is what we yeah. want. All right, guys. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next one.